Chapter 16 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. After having arranged everything in the fort, which I have forgotten to mention we named after Mr. Cass, and given all needful instructions to Winters, who was in charge, I again left. My intention was to induce the crows to devote their undivided attention to trapping, not alone for their own benefit, but for the interest of the company in whose service I was engaged. I well knew that if I was with them, they would capture five beavers to one if left to themselves. I had obtained great influence in the medicine lodge and could often exert it to prevent a war party from making a useless excursion against their enemies. I would tell them, in their counsel, that my medicine told me not to go to war, that it was in their interest to employ their warriors in trapping all the beavers possible, so that they might have the means of purchasing ammunition and weapons for themselves, as well as beads, scarlet cloth, and blankets for the women. That, by and by, we should be attacked by the enemy and be unprovided with the means of defense. That they would then kill all our warriors and make captives of our women and children, as the Cheyennes had captured my mother when I was an infant, many winters gone. That they should save all their warriors against the time of need, and only engage in war when the safety of their village was at stake. These representations would frequently dissuade them from their belligerent purpose, and beaver skins would be brought into the village by the pack. But they would soon tire of their pacific occupation, and their enemies' horses would offer them temptations which they could not resist. Nearly all the crows having left the fort before I did, only a few warriors remained to bear me company. I engaged to meet them at the mouth of the Little Horn within a given number of nights, and I knew I should be expected. We arrived in safety at the place appointed, and within the time I had specified. Soon after our arrival, it was proposed to send out a war party, not so much to fight as to reconnoiter, to see where horses could, with least difficulty, be procured, and gain a general intelligence of how matters stood. We set out, and had traveled slowly along for nearly two weeks, when our scouts returned to apprise us that there was a large crowd of women approaching toward us. We were then in a forest of plum trees, bearing large red plums, which were fully ripe and were very delicious. Feeling satisfied that the women were coming to gather fruit, we secreted ourselves, intending, at a given signal, to surround them while they were busily employed. Accordingly, we waited until they all set themselves about their task they keeping up an incessant jabber among themselves like so many blackbirds or bobolinks 
and having no suspicion that the crows would so soon come in for their share. At a sound from the whistle, they were entirely surrounded, and their merry chatter was hushed in an instant. We marched them to an open piece of ground, made them form a line, and proceeded to make a selection. The aged, the ill-favored, and the matrons we withdrew from the body, telling them to return to the village and depart without clamor. They went away in sullenness, with their eyes flashing fire. The remainder, to the number of fifty-nine very attractive-looking young women, we carried along with us, and as we were but three miles distant from their village and could plainly see the smoke of their lodges, we deemed it prudent to lose no time in making our way home. There were three warriors in the company of the women when first descried, but they were not enclosed in our surround, and we could find no traces of them in any direction. On our return toward home, the captives were, as usual, gloomy for an hour or two. But they very quickly brightened and amused us with their smiles and conversation during the whole of the journey. In four days, we reached the village and were received with thunders of applause. Four of the prisoners were adjudged my prizes, who, according to Indian customs, became my sisters. For my services in this expedition, I was honored with the name of Boa Hish-Ha, Redfish. Our prisoners were kindly received and treated with becoming attention. I carried my four sisters to my lodge and distributed them among my relatives. They were all married to Crow Braves and added materially to the strength of my band of relatives. For it is esteemed a great honor to marry the sister of a great brave, which appellation I had long borne. Pineleaf had captured two prisoners and offered me one of them to wife. I answered, You once told me I had already wives enough. I will not add to their number until I marry the heroine of the Crow Nation. Ah, you have found the red-headed Indian then, she said, laughing mockingly. She always received my advances with this unsatisfactory nonchalance, that it was with some unpleasantness of feeling I approached the subject. But the more I saw of her lofty bearing and witnessed the heroic deeds that she performed, the more ardent became my attachment to her. When she was by my side in battle, it seemed as if I had increased strength and courage. When she was away, which happened rarely, I felt a vacancy which no other warrior could supply. There was none bolder than herself, and she knew it. There were others of greater strength, but her deficiency in muscular power was more than indemnified by her cat-like agility and she would kill her man while others were preparing to attack. There was one thing that irritated the noble girl's curiosity, and that was the warpath secret. Having killed many in battle, having followed where any dared to lead, 
Why am I debarred from that important communication, she would ask. Why am I sent off with the women and children when that secret is told the warriors of but one battle? I would tell her that the misfortune of her sex rendered it impossible that she could ever have the secret unveiled to her. That, should she break her trust, she would surely pay the forfeit with her life. She would become angry at such representations, and her black eyes would glow like fire. Soon after this capture, a band of Blackfeet made reprisals by breaking our enclosure and taking 700 horses. I immediately collected a small party and went in pursuit. We speedily overtook them and recovered all the horses except 60, bearing the enemy, who precipitately fled, leaving two of their party dead. On our return, we were received with the usual demonstrations of joy, and the horse dance was performed by the village together with a scalp dance, which lasted nearly all night. About this time, my allied friend raised a war party and went in quest of the enemy, the heroine, ever active and prepared, accompanying him. I stayed behind. They returned in a few days, bringing eight scalps of the Kootenays, one of the bands of the Blackfeet. They had lost two of their warriors, much to the annoyance of the heroine, as she was prevented from dancing, although she had counted two coups. She then declared that she would go to war no more, except in my company. But she had to break her word, and the next time she engaged in fight, she received a severe wound. She wished me to raise a force immediately and go and kill an enemy, so that she could wash her face. I declined, however, on the ground that I was soon to go to the fort, and that I would engage in no hostile encounters until my return. When a war party loses one of its members, the survivors are compelled to wear their mourning paint until that same party or an individual member of it has wiped out the blot by killing one of the enemy without incurring loss of life. Thus, it not unfrequently happens when no opportunity of avenging a loss occurs that the mourners wear paint for months, regularly renewing it as it wears off. Small parties were continually going out and returning with varying success. The grand total of horses stolen by the crows from all other tribes during that year amounted to near 6,000 head. During the same period, however, they lost a great number stolen from them. I visited the fort again in October with 300 lodges of the Indians, the remainder following us in a few days. A great number of the Indians had been busy with their traps for about two months, and we took into the fort a great quantity of peltry, which procured for the Indians everything they needed, besides finery for the women. When I arrived, I was informed that the headhunter of the fort had been killed during my absence. Now, said Pineleaf, you will go to war for one of your people, and I will go with you so that I can wash my face. 
The fort had been subject to alarms during the whole time of my absence, but had only lost the man here referred to. As soon as the Indians had finished their trading, I directed them to move to the Yellowstone as far up as Pompey's Tower, telling them that I would join them in four nights. Then, as soon as I could get ready, I loaded twelve pack horses with goods for retail, and, taking two Canadians with me, I went on and joined the village at the appointed place. This much performed, I then attended to the frequent solicitations of the heroine, by leading a party and going in pursuit of the Blackfeet to chastise them, as I told the crows, for killing the white hunter. We were absent eleven days and returned with only four scalps and seventy-four horses. I received an arrow in my head, and there were three other warriors wounded, but none killed. The heroine then washed her face of the morning paint, which she had been grieving about so long. At this time I was third counselor of the nation, having been fifth and fourth previously. In the Crow Nation there are six counselors, and by them the nation is ruled. There are also two head chiefs who sit with the council whenever it is in session. The office of the first counselor is the highest in the nation, next to the head chiefs, whose authority is equal. If, in any of these divisions, when a matter is brought to the vote, the suffrages are equal, one of the old pipe men is summoned before the council, and the subject under discussion is stated to him with the substance of the arguments advanced on both sides. After hearing this, he gives his casting vote, and the question is finally settled. When war is declared on any tribe, it is done by the council. If any party goes out without the authority of the council, they are all severely whipped, and their whipping is no light matter, as I can personally testify. It makes no difference how high the offender ranks or how great his popularity with the nation. There is no favor shown. The man who disobeys orders is bound to be lashed, and if he resists or resents the punishment, he suffers death. We raised a war party of 300 men to act against the Cheyennes, having one of the head chiefs as leader. We moved on foot toward their country, which was about 250 miles from our village. In this expedition, I acted in the capacity of head spy, and was of necessity continually in advance of the main party. Being near the enemy, according to our calculations, I was some distance ahead, with four other spies, when we discovered five of the Cheyenne warriors in the act of dressing a buffalo which they had just killed. We crept slyly up within gunshot of them, and each singled out his man and fired. Four fell at the discharge. The other mounted his horse and fled. I mounted one of the other horses and pursued him within sight of his village, when I wheeled and returned to the camp, well knowing that we should be pursued immediately 
after the fugitive communicated his news. I found the camp readily, and acquainted the chief with what had happened, although it is against orders for spies to commence any attack. I told him that we were compelled to fight them to save our own lives, as the enemy had discovered us. That is all right, he said, but they will be soon after us, and we must retreat as fast as we can. We returned on our steps without losing a moment, and traveled all night. It was very cold, with considerable snow on the ground. In the morning, we built a fire, and as soon as we had warmed ourselves, we moved on. One man, who was lame, lingered by the fire after we had left, and he rejoined us in great alarm, telling us that the Cheyennes were on our trail in great force and were but a short distance behind us. We then put our boys and horses into a deep gully close by, and also stepped in ourselves, as soon as we had discharged one volley at our pursuers, who were then within short gunshot distance. They numbered from 1,500 to 2,000 warriors, all mounted, while we were but a very few warriors and had not more than a dozen horses in all. We were in a strong position, however, one which they dared not to storm, even with their whole force. Frequently, a few more daring cavaliers would advance to the edge of the bank and hurl their lances into our midst, but they rarely escaped our bullets. We had killed and wounded a great number in this manner, which taught our foe to be more cautious in his approaches. When our chief, losing heart, declared there was no hope for us, and that we infallibly should be all rubbed out. He addressed his son, a lad about sixteen years of age, in the following strain. My son, we shall be all killed here. The Cheyennes are very brave, and they have a cloud of warriors before us. It must never be said that my son was killed by them. Therefore, I must kill you myself before I die. Die, my son, first. In an instant, his son was a corpse, prostrate at the feet of his savage father. This, thought I, is the first time I ever saw a person killed to save his life. The actions of the old chief were wild throughout the whole proceeding. After killing his son, he rushed upon the top of the bank and addressed himself to the enemy and exposed Mark to their arrows as follows. Ho, Cheyennes! Here I am! Come and kill me! I am the great chief of the crows! Come and kill me first, and then you can easily kill my warriors! Many of your braves have fallen by my hand! Their scalps darken my lodge. Come! Come and kill me! I was astonished at such rashness, and still more astonished at the enemy, who, on seeing him a fair mark for their bullets, even withdrew to a greater distance and appeared to be perfectly paralyzed. After a while, our head chief descended and took a long smoke at his pipe. The enemy retired without troubling us farther, 
in the night we decamped and made all possible haste to our village where we arrived in safety without any molestation from the enemy the chief attributed our escape to the interposition of the great spirit whom the sacrifice of his son had propitiated in our behalf we killed fourteen of the enemy while in our entrenchment making eighteen and wounded a great number we had eight killed including the chief's son and ten or eleven slightly wounded when we arrived at home there was great mourning and we all assumed paint on our faces as usual but we wore it only a short time before we took ample revenge pine leaf did not accompany us on this expedition End of chapter 16